We all want to do work that we love. And as leaders, entrepreneurs, and employees, wouldn't it be great to create workplaces where work feels like play? Where people are tuned in to the changes going on in the world around them. Where they're constantly learning, spotting new opportunities, and taking action to go after them. I'm Amanda Satilli, and this is the Fearless Growth Podcast, where my guests and I will explore the mindsets and choices that lead you and your organization to outstanding performance. Welcome to the Fearless Growth Podcast. Today, my guests are Gaurav Bhatnagar and Mark Manukas, co-authors of the book Unfear. It's a book about how to transform your organization to create breakthrough performance and employee well-being. Welcome to the show, Gaurav and Mark. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, so um, you all have written about a topic that is dear to my heart, how to dispel fear and become more productive and more of a learning organization. So I was so excited to read it. One of the things that I think is very interesting about this is that you bring up in the book is how the stories that we tell ourselves often get in the way of our being able to work effectively with others and our ability to really put on the the learning mindset as opposed to the fear mindset. And often these stories come from things that happened, you know, when we were kids the relationship we had with our siblings, our birth order, how our parents treated us and things like that. And I was just wondering if those kinds of things ever come out during your workshops. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so they do, Amanda. In fact, we, we encourage them to come out. And often the way we do it is by role modeling and going first. And quite honestly, just, just being very honest, I have historically, you know, in early in my career, been a fear addict. And my story uh, coming out of India was that, you know, life is a competition. It's really hard. And my story around my fear of failure was you either succeed or you're nothing. And the way you succeed is by by climbing over the uh, other people. And given that story, I was displaying a lot of dysfunctional behaviors in my own life that were negatively impacting my relationships that was creating burnout in my life and that was that was also impacting my my personal life and my married life quite dramatically so so you know we often will role model so we can draw it out from other people and in in actually the first step to transformation is the recognition and the awareness of the story yeah and it's interesting i, I think we and myself included you know i was kind of taught to check your emotions at the door when you go to work and um, that's you know, not a very pragmatic or effective way to be, you know, but we, we have all these life experiences and, you know, good experiences and bad experiences and, you know, ways in which we've been, you know, conditioned to both see the world and enact in the world. And if you want to change how you show up in the world and be more effective, you often have to go deep and really understand why you're, you know, feeling and perceiving the way things, the way that, that you are. So, I think it does perhaps, you know, for some people certainly go back to to childhood. You kind of bring up another question that I wanted to ask, which is a, a really important po- point that you make in the book, which is you need to separate what you interpret from what you observed. And I think this is so powerful and it and it kind of ties back to what you just said. You said you could use words like I observed blank and from that I interpreted blank. I think that's such a useful way to think about it because 
then you you can say exactly what did I see, hear, or read exactly. And then you can go into what I imagined and made up based on that. Um, and that's a way to bring out your emotions at the same time as being fact-based. Is this something you teach people to do? Yeah, it's a very, very critical skill. I mean, it's, it's you know, oftentimes we perceive the world and we, we immediately assume that that's, uh, you know, one, accurate, and two, you know, true, as if everyone else is seeing the world in the, the same way. And that actually creates a lot, of, a lot of friction and a lot of challenges in organizations, um, you know, just to, you know, make assertions about the world that other people don't share. And so one thing we teach people, and this is part of, you know, facing your fears, is, you know, kind of stepping back and saying, look, you know, how I'm seeing the world is one version of it. Let me clarify for people, you know, what some of the assumptions are and how I'm holding my, my own emotions, and my own perceptions, and inviting other people into a conversation. So just asserting, you know, I am angry or you, you've done this to me is not, you know, an effective way to communicate. So separating your interpretation from what you're seeing is, is really an important skill to create better conversations at work. Gaurav, anything you want to add? Yeah, and I think, Amanda, to, to your question about do you teach people, I think the one thing you have to teach people is often people say, I observed you were angry. <laughs> now, you can't observe anger. You can observe behaviors or mannerisms that lead to an interpretation of anger. So the real teaching is to help people understand the distinction between an observation and an, and an, and an interpretation, which people actually don't really have. Um, you know, even simple things like I'll often, the example I'll give is, hey, tell me about this room. Is it a, what kind of room is it? And people will start getting into it's big or it's small. And that's an interpretation. The observation is the exact dimensions of the room. Mm -hmm. And we often are not clean on that. Mark, I, I'm really curious about the military because this seems like it would be a thing that would, I mean, one of many things in your book that would be really useful in the military. And often the military is surprisingly ahead of corporate America and the corporate world in terms of this kind of thinking. Do they teach things like this as well? I mean, about the observation versus interpretation? You know, surprising, that's not something I learned in the military. I think there is, there's a lot of you know, thought and training that gets put into you know, being an effective leader in the military. So I think people are already attuned to basic principles like taking care of other people, um, you know, showing up with a degree of humility, um, you know, generally speaking, saying, you know, making it okay to say, you know, I don't know, but let's find out. Uh, although that's something I, I personally struggled with <laughs> as, a, uh, as a leader in the military. But you're just immersed in a culture that is is very focused on training leaders and growing leaders. So I, I think that's some of what we talk about in the book is certainly reflected in what I learned um, in the military, but not all. I think there's there's certainly more that the military can do to improve, you know, emotional intelligence and uh, just improve how leaders use language to create better trust and, you know, advance um the conversations that people need to have in the workplace. I'm just always so impressed with people who come from a military background, especially people who went to one of the academies, because they always just seem to be so centered. <laughs> and um, it's it's kind of the opposite in the way of the of the um, 
I don't know, the expression people use when they say, oh, this is a really military type culture. And it, it, they, what they mean by that is it's very hierarchical, you know, do what, do what you're told, command and control or something. But actually the military in some ways espouses many of the things that you just spoke about. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a, a paradox of sorts or maybe a, a dichotomy. I think there are you know, certainly individuals in the military who can be very centered. Um, and there is a general, you know, uh, climate of, you know, hierarchy and they both kind of work together. I mean, it doesn't always mean that there's dysfunction there, but I think like any organization, you know, first off the military is a, is a huge place. So there's a lot of subcultures and, you know, different, different units or even subunits within a, a unit will have their, their own separate cultures. So I think you see, you know, a whole spectrum of, of effectiveness in the, the military. But I think there is, you know, this, yeah, this tension between training individuals to be quite centered and, you know, be able to face any challenge or, or pressure that um, that may be thrown at them. And there's a, you know, a general culture of, uh, you know, top down hierarchy as well. And there can be friction there. If you do your work well, those two things can coexist. Hierarchy where everybody knows, yeah, there's somebody in charge here who will tell us what the direction is but also humility about, I don't know how to do this. You know, I can set the vision, but I don't know how to get there. You guys who are down at the lower levels of the organization are the ones who are really going to figure out how we're going to do this. And I think that's when it really works well. Yeah, exactly. I think you need both. I think the the fear-based hierarchical organizations have leaders who really want to control everything and don't want to, you know, release the reins. They're trying to um, you know, get the the rest of the organization to serve them. I think when it works really well is when the hierarchy creates some structures and conditions that empower the rest of the organization. So it really just depends on how it's done. Right. Constraints can be freeing. Absolutely. Another interesting concept within your book is um, something we all know to be true, which is that having the right answer in an engineering sense or a, you know, logical sense is useless if you can't find buy-in. And one of the interesting um, sub points to that, that you bring up is you should always enlist the troublemakers in your, in your projects, because they're the ones who are going to raise objections and say no and be the naysayers, but they're doing that because they care. And I think that's a, a really interesting point. Do you have any good stories about troublemakers that you that you enlisted and how that turned the situation around? Yeah. Gorv is our resident troublemaker, so I'll let him <laughs> take this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In fact, my title should be chief troublemaker. Uh, All right. Uh, no, you, there, there are some really good stories. Just before I get into the story, Amanda, Amanda, I think the other thing with troublemakers are also they are really influential within the organization. So they create multiplier effects. And there was one particular story which was uh, which is there which was there, where we were working in in a manufacturing site, and you know there was this gentleman who was close to retirement, and was really you know the first time I saw him he was sulking and he was really upset about being asked to be part of the part of the change effort, and he was you know. And everyone would say, oh, you got him as one of your change agents. You're in trouble, man. As it turned out, he was, he was, he was really, really, you know, deeply passionate about, about the work. 
but he felt that his voice was not being heard. Mm-hmm. And as we worked with him and he realized that his voice was was going to be celebrated uh, in a sensible way, because it's not like everything he was saying was was right, he suddenly started opening up. So much so that, you know, he was sent to the headquarters to represent the site at one point and talk about what was going on. Turned out when he was returning back to 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 home, he ended up being on a on a flight which was very close to the flight time that I was landing in at this at this place. And I came out of my flight and I saw and was introduced to this this person's wife. And she came up to me and said, "What have you done to my husband? He is <laughs> so positive now, and he's he's you know he's he's so excited about things." And it was it, you know that was deeply meaningful. Because not only was he actually living in and actually positively impacting the organization, there was something pretty special that happened in his personal life as well. And, you know, I still stay in touch with, with this gentleman because it's, it's become a friendship of a lifetime. I think it's so important to recognize the troublemakers because there are often people who are really thinking deeply about the situation and people aren't listening to them because people are you know, in a fear-based organization, just trying to, you know, protect themselves, get the numbers delivered. Um, they don't have time to think about things that deeply or to, to, and you know, if the, if the boss says go right, everybody just goes, okay, let's go right. Even if, even if they see problems with it, they may be based on their fear mentality, be moving that direction. And the troublemaker is saying, but wait a second, going right has these risks. Let's make sure to address these risks. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's important to listen because the risks are real. It's super important to listen. And, and you know, part of the work that we do is we work with you know the formal leaders in the organization, but also these informal leaders because both have to show up differently in order for this to work. So you can imagine in this situation, the, the leaders need to you know, understand that they need to listen more effectively to people and these troublemakers and not just marginalize them because there is something valuable in here and they can't, you know, be filtering this information out. And then the the troublemakers have to learn how to show up and actually deliver the things that they care about, deliver those messages in a way that, you know, allows other people to hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then I think the other thing, Amanda, is that when you're working with fear, uh, fear is really, really sticky. And, and the thing is that when, when, People have experienced an event which has led to led to people creating negative stories about fear. They are carried long after the event has happened. And you know, another place where we were working, there was a factory shutdown that happened five years before we had showed up. And ninety percent of the people who were working with us had not been there when the plant shutdown had happened. And yet, they still talked about how unfair. The other side was when the plant shutdown had happened. And in that situation, there was so much resistance because anything management said, the employees would not buy into. And anything the employees said, the management would look at with suspicion based in that event that happened five years ago, and 90% of them were not there. Yeah, it's so interesting how these stories can just linger and linger and fester. And this gets back to that interpretation, uh, observation you know, challenges, a lot of people based on their past experience, you know, start to interpret, you know, these events in a certain way. 
and it's often uh, you know a negative story that they're telling about you know various events it could be you know the CEO says something like, hey, we're going to change directions or we're going to do this. It's a very innocuous comment, but based on the past experiences people have, they create this big, huge story about what's actually going on, you know, and and so helping people untangle, you know, what's actually being said from the story that they have about it helps them, you know, reframe these stories and, and you know, maybe get out of this negative loop that they're in as well. I think if you can get the leader to be telling the right stories, stories about progress, stories about where we want to go together, stories about customers being delighted with something that we did, it can be really powerful to help turn that around. Do you do you find that le- most top leaders are natural storytellers or do you have to teach them? And if you teach them, how do you teach them? How do you get them comfortable with storytelling and do you have any techniques for getting them to just do it more regularly? Unfortunately, in my experience, and Mark, yours might be different, Amanda's, yours might be different, but I do not think business leaders are actually think storytelling is an important skill. I think most of us as human beings are storytellers by nature because that's how we we communicate things. But somehow in the workplace, that disappears and it becomes PowerPoint presentations and bullet points. So a lot of our work when we are teaching people about storytelling is helping them understand uh, first through examples the power of storytelling, but then giving them a structure which allows them to be storytelling in an authentic way. Because because if it's all positive, people are not going to buy it. If it's all negative, it's going to collapse people. But where is the middle ground of authenticity? And one of the big ideas we talk to our our business leaders about is what is your cathedral story? You know, a a bricklayer is laying bricks, but if the bricklayer thinks that all he or she is doing is laying bricks, that person shows up with very different energy than a bricklayer who thinks that he or she is building a cathedral, right? And that is the core of it. Gaurav, I wanted to go back. Okay, we're going to come back to the storytelling issue, but there's one thing I want to make sure that we hit on. Gaurav, you tell a really interesting story <laughs> about uh, yourself when you were at McKinsey spending inordinate energy, you said, creating and projecting a manufactured persona that didn't align with my true self. And you said that you had to you had to ask yourself whether you would try to fit in and survive at a company that didn't value your contribution or step into your uniqueness. Can you Tell us anything about that transformation, how that happened. Sure. I mean, this was this was a point where, you know, here I was doing work, which is, you know, quite non-numbers oriented. And I mean, I'm, I was working in a space where I was working with the mindsets of people. And, you know, it's, there's no judgment on this, but McKinsey tends to be, you know, what is measured is what is rewarded. And and people just couldn't figure out, you know, why did clients appreciate what I was doing so much or how to value it? And I was stuck in a fear-based pattern of, oh my God, if I leave McKinsey, one, my message would not go out because how would I go talk to people? And two, you know, as my mother told me at that point, she said, hey, Gaurav, you have young children. And what if you are not able to earn a living? 
And so I had to do a lot of reflection about my own stories, about who I was, believing into my potential, engaging in conversations with with my wife, to 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 actually step out of my comfort zone and step into fear so that I could embrace the learning of leaving a comfortable but stuck situation to find my true expression. And that was the foundation of co-creation partners. It was about if I want other people to be the way they I want, I'm asking them to be, I need to step into that myself. So you actually left the firm at mm-hmm. this transformation time. Yes, okay. the, the, this part of this one, yes. Very interesting. But, but, but again, not because there's anything wrong with the firm, but I needed to be honest with myself. And you're creating something amazing that you that you get to you get to create. You get to decide with Mark what it is. What are we trying to do here? How are we going to do it? Just really fun. Absolutely. Mark, do you want to say anything about how you and Gaurav decided to work together and how this all came together into a cohesive uh, co-creation partners? So I met Gaurav. I was still at the firm and he had recently left to start co-creation partners and we actually found ourselves working at the same client. I was running a, a big lean transformation and Gaurav was doing, you know, the mindset stuff. And I heard about these mindset workshops that, that were happening and I was very skeptical at first. I was like, who is this guy who, you know, couldn't hack it at the firm? You know, he's coming in doing these woo-woo uh, mindset workshops and he's going to mess up, you know, all the stuff that I'm doing with my, my lean transformation. So I joined um, some of the workshops, you know, primarily to just check in on this and, and see what was going on. And, you know, from that first workshop, I was like, wow, this is the missing link. You know, this is a missing piece to a lot of the work that I've been doing. As I've always felt this, this gap, you know, I would come back to clients six, 12 months later and, and see that a lot of the, the work that we had done just wasn't sustained. You know, these brilliant ideas and brilliant plans and transformation efforts that seemed so promising, just, you know, the energy was kind of drained out and, you know, not as much was happening. And, you know, this, this deeper mindset work and really shifting how people themselves, you know, at the individual level show up was just so powerful. So when I left the firm a, a few years later, Gaurav and I had kept in touch and, um, you know, we started collaborating on, on some, some work and it's been a great collaboration ever since. Yeah, that's interesting because I noticed that a lot of the techniques, ideas in your book are very aligned with, you know, total quality management and Deming and Lean and a lot of stuff that's come before. You're standing on the shoulders of giants. But it sounds like you were already doing all of that stuff and you saw that Garov was doing something new, which was working on the mindsets of the individuals, what's inside. And that's very interesting that that's, that was sort of left out. Do you find that that's often missing? Like that people have everything right, but they're forgetting that one piece? I think it's, yes, yeah, it's, it's often missing. So a lot of the, the work, uh, you know, in quality management or lean management and agile and design thinking, it deals with, you know, the outer world. So what's kind of happening in the organization, it could be, you know, the processes are there, the information that people are using, the tools and practices and routines, and that's all great stuff. And the intention of all that is to create learning organizations, to get people to see problems in new ways and to take, you know, creative actions that solve problems and create new outcomes and do it in a very collaborative way. But that's still all happening, you know, it at the sort of organizational system level, sort of in the outer world. 
but oftentimes the reasons why people don't you know engage with those processes and those practice practices very easily is because of a lot of the the internal fear that they have and so if you don't actually you know help people step into a learning mindset for themselves as individuals it's very very difficult to create you know, the, the system level change that you want to want to create. And so it's, it's kind of, it's both and. Yeah. And just, just, just to build on that, Amanda, I think what, what often people don't realize is, uh, you know, that how you see the world conditions, what actions you can take. So if you see the world in a certain way, you have a you have one set of actions available to you. And when you see the world in a different way, it opens up new sets of actions. And a lot of the lean work and the total quality work is about the actions that need, need to be different. The mindset work allows people to see that there's a whole new set of actions that are available to them. And, you know, Mark has told me, told you about why he wanted to work with me. The reason why I wanted to work with Mark was because I think I was doing a lot of really powerful being work, but unless the being is translated into the doing, you don't still have impact. So Mark brought to, 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 to co-creation this view, the strategic view, the system view, as well as a doing view of how do you translate shifted mindset into practical action. And I think that's the distinctiveness of the work, which is it works at a both over at a being and a doing level. If you all had to name one exercise or um, experience that you incorporate into your workshops that is most effective at shifting the mindset, shifting, helping people understand where they're coming from and what their worldview is and how that can change, what would it be? Can you tell us what it Tell us a little bit about how what what happens in the workshop. Sure, we both I'm sure have our own favorite. So I'll start and then Mark, you jump in. So the one which I love doing in a workshop is I hold a blue colored pen up in my hand and I say I'm going to do a magic trick now. And you know, I first what I do is I just open my hand and I let the pen drop and I, I tell people there's only one right answer. And what do you think the answer is? Why did the pen fall? And most people will say it's gravity. And then what I do is, okay, now I say, now the magic is going to happen. I go abracadabra, da, 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 whatever. And then I hold on to the pen and the pen doesn't fall. And I say, how come the pen's not falling? And they say, oh, you held on to it. But I said, but then I tell them, but you said the answer is gravity. And did gravity magically disappear? And that leads to a really interesting conversation because what it suddenly helps people realize is that people don't focus on the things that are in their control. And they often blame the circumstances or the situation for, for, for what is going on, which we call a victim mindset. Mm -hmm. And the big idea with this little exercise is to show that if we approach the situation with mastery, yes, gravity exists. And yet we have a choice in terms of how we show up in the situation. And that choice allows us to be effective. And just a simple little thing like that creates and makes the light bulbs go off and you can almost see people's eyes light up say oh my god i didn't realize how i was disempowering myself do you find that you need to change anything about how these people are being led before that or maybe only be a week before but you know to have the their leadership accept that they're going to be coming up with new ideas they're going to be thinking that they're more powerful than they thought they were and you better be ready for it 
Yeah, so we flip it around. What we do is we say the leaders need to work on their journey, the change agents need to work on their journey, and then they need to come together. And the idea is you first need to reflect on yourself and then let's then go and see the experience with new eyes when you work with leadership. So often it is, you know, and yes, the leader needs to come in and say the right words, but actually it's in the self-experience and then engaging differently that the magic happens. So we, again, that's why our approach is called Inside Out, and it's less about what leadership is allowing you to do. It's about what are you allowing yourself to do and let the leaders also go through the same experience and then bring them together to create something that they did not expect to come out in, in this. Mark, do you have a different answer? Yeah, I, I love the one Gaurav gave, but I, another you know favorite you know sort of inflection point in in some of the workshops that we uh, run is on interpretation and observation. We we often do this exercise where uh, you know the two facilitators in the room, let's say Gaurav and I, you know, play out this uh, this scene where one of us gets you know frustrated and will crumple up a piece of paper and throw it at the other person, storm out of the room, and then we ask the group afterwards. Hey, what did you observe there? And we have two columns on the the flip chart, you know, one representing not labeled yet, but one representing observations, one representing interpretations. And what a lot of people end up doing of just about every single group is they all they list are just interpretations. You are angry, you are upset, Garv was disrespectful, you know, all these things are just pure interpretations. And we keep asking the question, well, what did you observe? What do you observe? And we help them realize that, you know, most of what they think they're observing, they're really interpreting. And the observation in that case was throwing a piece of paper at Gaurav, right? The interpretation was you were angry and Gaurav was being disrespectful. And so that's just a, it's a big insight that, you know, people have that they, you know, they come to understand that a lot of what they're describing about the world is really their, their own interpretation and they need to own those interpretations and share them with other people so they can create better conversations. It really does help the conversation when people separate those two things. Yeah. And it's hard. It's very hard. You have to keep reminding yourself. Well, it it has been such a pleasure talking with both of you today, and I enjoyed reading your book. I think it's a fabulous book. And I uh, can you tell us how people can reach you, how how they can engage with you? Absolutely. Yeah. People can go to unfairbook.com if they want to learn more about the book, or they can go to cocreationpartners.com. That's co-creation partners with no dashes, and they can get more information on our firm, and they can get. Uh, our email addresses and, and reach out and contact us. Yeah. And if you want to pre-order the book, Amazon has it. And if you are more of a local book chain person, go to indie.com and they will be able to connect you to your local book, your bookstore to be able to get the book there. That is so nice that you uh, gave a shout out to the independent bookstores. That's fantastic. And um, I'm going to write a review on Amazon, and I hope that everyone who picks up your book does the same because I'd love to this, this uh, thinking to get out into the world. Awesome. Quickly. Thank you so All much. Right. Thank you so much, Amanda. Thanks for being a guest. Bye-bye. Bye bye. 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 Thank you for listening to Fearless Growth. You can find out more about the show at satilly.com slash podcast, and you can listen on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like what you've heard, please take a moment to write a review and give us a star rating. Reviews matter so much in helping others find us. Thanks for your support. <laughs>